Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Recent economic development in Vietnam has seen a proliferation of manufacturing. At the same time, Vietnam has embraced creative innovation as part of its move towards the fourth industrial revolution. Throughout the country, new creativity and innovation practices are emerging. These practices provide a creative outlet, as you'd expect, but they also connect to bigger themes around industry, well-being, productivity, sustainability, and climate change. To untangle these threads and to explain the relationship between creativity and manufacturing and sustainability, I am joined by Dr. Jane Gavin, Associate Professor at the Sydney College of the Arts at the University of Sydney. She is both artist and researcher, curating in-country collaborations between creative practitioners and organisations. Jane's research seeks opportunities for sustainable, innovative ways of raising productivity and valuing creativity in Vietnam. Her recent major exhibition, Manufacturing Creativity at the Museum of Ho Chi Minh City, was supported by UNESCO and the Vietnam Institute of Culture and Art Studies. Through this work, Jane develops new access to materials, processes and audiences for creative practitioners and builds sustainable, socially responsible innovation in firms. Jane, thank you so much for joining us on CX Stories. Hi, nice to be with you, Natalie. So let's start with manufacturing, which has proliferated in Vietnam in recent years. What is Vietnam making and where are these manufacturing hubs? That's a very good question. One of the main reasons I was attracted to Vietnam was traveling on holiday. I was approaching one of the beautiful areas such as Ha Long Bay. And on the trip from Hanoi, driving out to Ha Long Bay, I passed so many different manufacturing communities, lots of different factories on the main road out to the bay. And so I was really interested in finding out a little bit more about these because I see them as a site for collaboration for my art practice. So anything from telecommunications companies, for example, Samsung is a major site for their work is in Vietnam. You have also clothing and footwear manufacturers, all manner of things. It's a very can-do community. Anything in the world can be made in Vietnam. It's an incredible place to be. I love this idea of you heading out to a place that we tend to associate with R&R and you've got your eye on the factories. Yes. (laughs) Are these manufacturing businesses locally or internationally owned? So that's interesting. Usually when anybody operates in Vietnam, they work through a subsidiary. So the Samsung company has multiple subsidiaries in Vietnam and most companies work this way. So they have multiple sites doing different jobs. So one factory might make one component or a series of components or focus on assembly and other factories might focus on parts. So the government is able to oversee and co-opt local people to work in these organisations and indeed to lead them as well. Yeah. So tell us about the people who are working in the industry. How many are involved in manufacturing? I would say it's a large percentage of the GDP of Vietnam these days. And as as you mentioned in the introduction, it's a rising sector because what's happened in 
China, which we know traditionally as one of the main sites of the production of consumption goods, the wages have risen there and wage conditions have risen there to such an extent that markets and producers are looking for different sites for production with perhaps different wages. I think a lot of people move to Vietnam. For example, one of the companies I'm interested in collaborate through UNESCO in talking to them about possibilities is Uniqlo. So a lot of the companies have moved into Vietnam for this reason, because of the availability of labour. This has since changed because the labour cost in Vietnam has gone up as well and now they're moving into different parts of Southeast Asia. So this is a movable feast and a very interesting part of our research in some ways, just from a distance compared to other colleagues at SEAC noticing these shifts in labour. Yeah, well, on that topic of labour and you said it's such a large proportion of Vietnam's GDP, one of the things that we are increasingly aware of are these issues relating to corporate and social responsibility. What does good corporate and social responsibility look like in a Vietnamese context? Is there a large understanding of it in Vietnam? I'd say it's growing and in the last 10 years it's had a bit of an uptick So I've been connected to labour, independent labour researchers in Hanoi, and they've told me about a breakdown that looks a little bit like this. There are 5% of the really top performers in terms of corporate responsibility in Vietnam, a large percentage of operators who are very, very keen to do the right thing by their community, but they may lack the resources or know how to do so. And then there are a recalcitrant or a um, a deviant group at the bottom of that list, and some of the big names are included in that, and they they form about 10%. So it really isn't the fact that people want to do the wrong thing by their labour community, it's just that their knowledge of what to do and how to resource that is still emerging. It's quite interesting in that way. Well, I'd like to bring in the other part of the puzzle here, which are the artists and the designers in Vietnam. And I understand that they're largely self-funded and often looking for new opportunities for practice, for new audiences, and for better access to materials and processes and skills. Can you tell us a bit more about these communities of artists and designers in Vietnam and how you came to connect these communities with the manufacturing industry? Yes, so I think the idea for me was to test out some of the recommendations from my doctoral research where I was really inspired and grew my practice and skills and and came out with some recommendations that offered the factory community as a site for increased access to materials, often free, and increased access to skills and new communities for practice, as you said. And so the proliferation of factories in Vietnam and the emergence of a wider number of contemporary artists since the 1980s, when the idea of contemporary art and the independence of the artist and the self-funded artist, according to Nora Taylor, really kicked off. She's academic researcher from Chicago on this topic, you see that I was just interested in looking at this as a case study country, whether or not connecting these communities with previously fairly untested 
willing partner would bear for the independent artists. And I found that they actually were surprised, a little bit sometimes reluctant. Sometimes they were unsure of the value alignment with the companies. But I think that's part of the magic of this type of work. I found that the contemporary artist and a contemporary manufacturer do have similar aims in terms of their values aligning around sustainability and community and innovation. So, yeah, it was quite interesting. That's a marvellous thing you've done there, connecting these quite diverse from the outside, quite diverse communities and finding these areas where their values are so aligned. Have they recognised the benefits for working from the artists and designers in working more closely with industry and vice versa? I think they have. It it just, because I worked with a group, I tried to mix, I work across art and design and a lot of them were really reticent about whether or not there was going to be an appetite for the company to engage. They thought the company was going to be so focused on productivity in a fiscal sense that they weren't going to have time to allow the artist in. But once we broke through that and the artist started spending time there, it's quite revelatory what happens in terms of how much the artist can change the mindset of the community towards innovation, towards the willingness to experiment, the appetite for calculated risk in terms of experimentation with existing materials and processes. Can you give us some examples of the innovative practices that have emerged as a result of this collaboration? Yes, so it's a bit too early to do some long-term data on this, but initial examples I would include from the project were from a company that was looking at making uh, ceramics and raffia. So this is a type of grass that's grown down in the Mekong Delta and farmed by lots of women in those communities and then dried out and shipped to just north of Ho Chi Minh City. And so this family-run company, quite a successful company led by a woman as well, was manufacturing design objects for the home from Raffia and she had some skilled workers there developing weaving techniques for these products. They are also dried in an oven to cure and they are often woven around metal frames So it's quite a popular product in many markets, including lots of industrial Western countries. And the other side of the business is ceramic production firms. So two industrial design experts worked with that company. And one of them just decided to immerse themselves in the ceramic side and went there as frequently as possible, creating new works and learning from the experts there, but also just sitting and experimenting and just reminding the key ceramic designers there what the benefits were of just spending time and tinkering and and playing with one-off prototypes rather than just continuing to make production work. And the other person was really experimenting with new techniques, developing new techniques and sitting down beside the people weaving the raffia and getting advice on how she could develop those techniques. So what happened was that she developed, I think, three or four different products that were quite different in weaving pattern and structure than what the company was using. And it really did open their eyes. And 
what I think is the best thing about it is that we find it raises the motivation of the staff and the teams that come to work every day to see what the progress is of the artist. So it really does form a a new type of community outside the factory walls, which is often quite an enclosed hermetic space in terms of the local community. You've touched on the benefits for innovation. What about the benefits for wellbeing and this idea of there being greater connections within local communities? Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, to me, that's one of the most interesting ones. And a current project I'm working on at the moment with the University of Culture and Heritage in Ho Chi Minh City, and we're hoping to work through UNESCO, who's invested in this project. And it's called the Liam Project, and it's working with the co-peoples in Bidup National Park. The idea of thinking about how manufacturing and design and production of objects can benefit different communities. This type of project would benefit the co-peoples because they have terrible issue with water security in the national park. The land is being sold off for sturgeon production and there's a lot of degradation of the land and this is affecting the the footprint and the community sort of base of this very special and, and one of the oldest minority communities in the area. So if we can connect local manufacturers and often the minority communities are sending members of their family to work in these factories and then they go home during the holiday periods, which are so important, for example, Tet holiday in Vietnam, we can sort of start to draw threads between these two communities. So the well-being is telling stories of what's happening in the factory back to the home community, but also bringing the skills of the factory workers back to the home community to build that community up, to develop new products, to connect with the tourism sector and to create what my colleague Lam Nan talks about as a true living museum, not not so much uh, the current one, which is a little bit a confection. So, Absolutely. And as you say, this is a new project that has emerged, what, in the last six months or so? How have you been able to progress this during COVID and the inability to travel? Have you got great collaborators in country already? Yes. So the uh, University of Culture and Heritage is one of my key partners along with UNESCO. So we have kept in touch. And I think one of the most special things about Vietnam is its real focus on family and relationships. So I think that anybody in the Vietnamese community of researchers is aware that really had to keep these relationships going during COVID. And so that calling on each other for support and ongoing, just doing anything we can. I have a wonderful job of helping to develop texts for the local museums of Vietnam. So translating and editing texts is one way that I've kept in touch. So I'm hoping to get there this year. We're all we're all waiting with bated breath to travel from May onwards over to Vietnam and join our partners again. Well, I think the wonderful thing is you've been able to invest in those relationships all along, so you should be able to hit the ground running in a way. Hope so, yes. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned UNESCO. Can you tell us how your projects and work, your practice, is connected to the UN Sustainable Development Goals? 
Yes. So I don't think I write a project now unless I've looked at the goals and seen how many boxes I can tick. And it's not about ticking as many as possible, but just thinking, I like to think across the different goals and seeing where the project can reach. So education is a key one and creativity and innovation. My work often touches on sustainability. In the factories, we look at clean waste and what can be done with that. And in, for example, the Bidop National Park, it would be to turning to what was available rather than thinking about using water and think about what waste is around or what natural materials are around in the forest that regenerate really easily that we can use. So, yeah, I think my list of tick boxes for the SDGs is really growing, which is great. It's really great to hear an academic taking them into account so proactively. So thanks for touching on that. I noticed that you just mentioned clean waste. Do you also use recycled materials like factory offcuts and things like that as potential material for creative practice? Yes. So I would call a factory offcut clean waste. For example, with Coca-Cola plant and UNESCO ran a project with Coca-Cola And they have a clean waste system where they take the water waste that they use and they turn that into clean water before it returns to the catchment. There are things happening. There's also another company, a jeans company, and so they develop bio pellets and clean water from their factory. There's a lot going on within factories to increase their ratings for sustainable work and outputs. There's a lot of clean waste in factories that's being unsold. It's quite interesting in Vietnam, there's a business and a whole industry around on-selling clean waste. One of the outcomes of my last research was that tracking where that clean waste goes and who's managing it is a little bit of a gray area. It's it's just not that clear. And I'm thinking that could be a, a really interesting project to sort of track where some of this waste goes. I have visited some factories that are making new products from the waste from the Samsung factory, for example, and that pelletized plastic was used in one of my projects for an artist, Les Yang, for the Manufacturing Creativity Project. So most of the work that I do with Manufacturing Creativity was using clean waste from factories. I completely agree, Jane. It's so interdisciplinary and I commend you on being able to keep it going and get new projects off the ground during this period when you haven't been able to travel. And I wish you all the best for when you are able to visit your collaborators in Vietnam again and see the results of all your efforts over the past couple of years. Thank you, Natalie. I love talking to you. Thanks very much. It was wonderful to have you. Thanks a lot, Jane. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. 